You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. I'm your host and public health scientist, Dr. Jeff Steyer. And this week, I have to kick kick things off by sharing the bittersweet news that I will no longer be co-hosting with Dr. Andrea Love. For almost four years, Andrea contributed incredible, top-notch scientific content to unbiased science, and it was a privilege to work alongside her, and she will be missed. She's moving on to focus on science communication through her personal page, Dr. Andrea Love, as well as her substack, Immunologic, and of course, we'll be sharing information about Lyme disease via the American Lyme Disease Foundation, of which she is the executive director. More than that, Andrea has been a friend for almost two decades. I wish her nothing but the very best in her future endeavors and will continue to be a fan of her brilliant work. I'll be sure to link to her pages in our show notes so you can follow her as well. So how will this change unbiased science? Well, for starters, I'm a public health scientist, so my expertise is in data, biostatistics, and epidemiology. My subject matter expertise focuses on preventative health strategies and public health policies and programs aimed at improving population health. But I'm not a biomedical scientist, and I would never pretend to be one. So I will be leaning into partnerships and collaborations with folks who do have expertise on those topics moving forward. I have some really great guests lined up, and I think you'll love hearing from them as well. But in many ways, the pod will stay the same. The mission of Unbiased Science is unchanged. I'll be sharing the best available data and evidence on a variety of health and science topics, debunking misinformation and pseudoscience, and sharing credible information with the goal of helping people make informed decisions that pertain to their health and wellness. So to plan for this week, I combed through some of the messages that were sent to the pod page, and I noticed that many were asking about the association if any, between acetaminophen and autism spectrum disorder. So I thought it might be helpful to to run today's podcast as a bit of a journal club. And if you've never attended journal club, settle in, pour yourself a cup of coffee. I think you'll enjoy. I've selected a research study that's explored this topic and will be walking through how I, as a scientist, read and interpret findings. So let's get started. So first, I want to take this, take a step back and just set this stage here. So what is our current understanding of the potential causes of autism spectrum disorder? We know that it's a complex condition. Um, it's likely to arise from a combination of genetic and environmental factors. So here's what we know. It is a high heritability rate, which means there's a very strong genetic component. So if a child has an older sibling with autism, their risk of developing autism spectrum disorder is higher than that of the general population. We also know um, that many different genes likely play a role in autism spectrum disorder. These gene variations can be inherited or they can be new mutations that occur spontaneously. And sometimes autism is associated with rare gene changes um, or mutations that have a significant impact on brain development. Let's, Let's talk about environmental factors, particularly during pregnancy or early childhood, since obviously that's that's the focus of our conversation today. Um, There is some research that shows that, again, certain environmental factors during pregnancy or early childhood may play a role in increasing the risk for autism. Um, So some of these examples include things like maternal infections during pregnancy, air pollution, 
advanced parental age, that's both uh, maternal and paternal, um, and possibly certain medications. And again, we're going to focus today on Tylenol. I do also want to share, I received many questions um, about, I guess there was a, there was a new study published on early childhood exposure to Tylenol. And that, that's different than what I'll talk about today. I'm talking about exposure during pregnancy, so maternal exposure during pregnancy. But there is also a question about, um, does, uh, does the fact that certain kids will take Tylenol early in childhood impact their likelihood of being diagnosed with autism? And that's a, that's a great question. That's a different topic and one that I'll tackle on a different day. I do want to absolutely underscore something that has been discussed many times on this podcast and in many different posts that we've done. There is absolutely zero association, of course, with vaccination and autism. And so much of the misconception around this um, supposed link between the MMR vaccine and autism um, was spurred by a completely falsified study by Andrew Wakefield. Um, he's since had his medical license revoked. The the study that he um, that he falsified was 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 retracted by the Lancet, which is where it was originally published. There were so many issues with this with that study, and again, we've discussed that previously, including the fact that it had a really small sample size. I believe it was a sample size of twelve. Um, total bias in recruiting for the sample um, for that study. Uh, there were some very obvious obvious conflicts of interest, including that Wakefield was, um, he was developing a vaccine of his own. He was also developing a diagnostic tool for autism. I mean, all kinds of stuff. But unfortunately, the damage has been done um, and that myth persists. But obviously, I had to mention that on this episode, um, but I hope that we can soon put, put that to bed. So, other things I wanted to flag for you is that research demonstrates that individuals with autism often have differences in brain structure and connectivity compared to neurotypical individuals. And these differences may affect how the brain processes information and communicates. Um, also men wanted to mention that differences in the levels of cer certain neurotransmitters, um, these are chemicals that help brain cells communicate, may also be involved in autism. So again, what do we know? There's no single cause of autism. Our, our best understanding right now is that there's a complex interaction between genes and environment. Autism is multifactorial and we cannot po point to a singular cause. So honestly, at the end of the day, whether or not you're convinced by the study that I'll share with you, Today on um, on Tylenol, maternal Tylenol use during pregnancy and the development of autism, um, I just I want to caution folks on pointing fingers or blaming whether it be yourself or someone you know. Um, you know, if 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 a child develops autism or or any outcome or any adult develops a disease or anything like that, it is highly rare and unlikely that we can point to a singular cause and pointing pointing fingers and and laying blame does nothing uh, but but shame and it's it's just misguided so wanted to say that as well all righty so let's talk about the relationship between Tylenol uh, acetaminophen during pregnancy and potential increased risk of autism spectrum disorder. Now, as a reminder, if, if you don't, or if you don't know this, acetaminophen is the only analgesic considered safe for use throughout pregnancy. So I remember during both of my pregnancies, I inevitably got sick or, you know, I, I developed some sort of a cold, I had a headache and you cannot take ibuprofen. The only, the only medication approved for use, the only analgesic approved for use um, that is considered safe during pregnancy is Tylenol. Um, but there have been some concerns about, um, about safety and many studies done. So I wanted to first just kind of break down. I, I did a literature search and a very um, brief literature review of the current body of evidence. And I did want to say that there are some observational studies, like the one we'll talk about today, that have found correlations between prenatal acetaminophen exposure and increased rates of 
autism spectrum disorder, as well as um, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. But it's very important that you note that these studies suggest an association, but not necessarily a direct cause and effect relationship. Now, I've spoken previously about this concept of causality, and obviously the goal of so many research studies is to try to determine whether a particular variable is causing a particular outcome. And the reality is that we can't ever be sure of causality with 100% certainty. And so we do our best to design studies that help isolate the relationship between a particular variable and an outcome of interest. And we do this by creating proxies. Um, We design studies that um, are, are trying to replicate something called the counterfactual, which is essentially, and again, we've spoken about this previously, it's well, let, let me, rather rather than speaking in generalizations, let me just give an example. So let's say we are interested in, in understanding whether uh, maternal use of, of, of Tylenol during pregnancy increases likelihood of a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. In an ideal world, we would have, uh, we, would, we would look at children who were born to mothers who, uh, who did not take Tylenol during pregnancy and follow them over time and see whether they were diagnosed with autism. And then we would get in our time machine, we would go back in time and give those very same mothers Tylenol during pregnancy and then follow them forward in time and assess whether those very same children were diagnosed with autism. Of course, we cannot do that. So what we do is we design studies to approximate the counterfactual. And we could do a pretty good job of approximating that, but it's never a perfect science. So we have to take take extreme caution when it comes time to um, asserting causal relationships between variables. Now, in searching the available evidence, I did see um, some studies have examined acetaminophen levels in umbilical excuse me, in an umbilical cord blood at birth and have found a potential link between higher levels and an increased likelihood of autism and, again, um, ADHD diagnosis later in childhood. And taking it a step further, certain studies indicate a dose-response relationship, which means the more frequent the use of Tylenol during pregnancy, the potentially um, higher the risk for autism. But again, we have to keep in mind this is not perfect and there are several confounding variables. And observational studies are particularly prone to to confounding. Now, what is a confounder? A confounder is some third variable that is clouding the relationship between our variable of interest and our outcome of interest. So in this example, there are likely other factors that are impacting whether or not a mother is taking Tylenol during pregnancy um, and also impacting uh, the development of, of autism in children later in life, right? So we have to remind ourselves that observational studies cannot fully account for other factors that might be contributing to autism risk, such as genetics, maternal health, and environmental exposures. Um, Also want to be clear that there are many conflicting studies. Not all studies demonstrate a link. Some show no association, which again, this this further highlights the need for further research on this topic. And there are animal studies, excuse me, by the way, I'm just recovering from a viral illness, so I apologize if my voice is a little funny. Um, But some animal studies suggest a potential biological mechanism, but remember, preclinical studies, animal studies, in vitro studies, while very valuable, they do not directly translate to humans. And so you have to proceed with caution and cannot expect that you could generalize what we're finding in an animal study to humans. So I found a particular study that I thought would be helpful to walk through. It's a recent study. It was published just last year in the Journal of Pediatric Research. Of course, I'll link to this in the show notes. The title of the study is Examining the Relationship of Acetaminophen Use During Pregnancy with Early Language Development in Children. 
Now, the first thing I want to flag for you is that this study did not directly uh, assess autism diagnosis, right? So they're assessing early language development. Um, this is one of the signs of, um, or one of the factors or, or things that are assessed when uh, diagnosing autism. So I just want to be very clear about that. Um, also, if you're watching this on YouTube, um, our amazing executive producer, Jared, I know he'll put a link up here. So the study link will pop up if you want to go ahead and, and click that Click that link and follow along with me as I move through the study. And actually, if you are watching on YouTube, first of all, thank you. I got dressed for the occasion. Um, and if you can uh, hit subscribe, that would be super helpful. All right. So I'm going to give a very brief um, overview of this study. But I did want to share with you, I, you know, it, it's interesting. A lot of people ask, you know, how do you as a scientist read a study? And I want to say that I actually do not like to start with the abstract. Typically, I'll skip right on over the abstract and typically, honestly, over the introduction, because usually I have some sort of a background um, or, or basic understanding of the topic um, that that's being studied. And I do this because I think it distorts the way that I see the rest of the study and it forces me to read it through the lens of the researchers. So instead, I like to jump right ahead to the study design section to understand how the researchers designed the study to answer their research question. And it's so funny, I, I'm sure I've said this many times before, but designing the research study is the single most important step of the research process. Um, figuring out how you're going to answer your research question how are you going to set up the groups that you're comparing? How are you operationalizing your variables? These are key questions that set the stage for the research. And obviously, I know that when people read studies, people often get hung up on the statistical analysis. And that seems like perhaps the most intimidating part of a study. But in all all actuality, is that a word actual? Yes, actuality. Um, the, the statistical analysis is dictated by the data that we collect. And I'm going to talk more about that in a moment. But that part is, it's almost the easy part, dare I say. The most difficult part and the most critical part is designing your research study, D designing your, your approach to answering the question. So, okay. This particular study, again, I'll link to it, and the authors are Woodbury et al. Um, they use data from the Illinois Kids Development Study, or iKids for short. And this is a prospective birth cohort in East Central Illinois. Um, data were collected between December 2013 and March 2020. Um, ultimately, and again, I'm going to get into the details here, but 532 newborns were enrolled and they had exposure data available. Participants reported the number of times they took acetaminophen, um, six times across pregnancy, language data. So remember the outcome of interest here is early language development. Um, so language data were collected among children at 26.5 to 28.5 months using standardized tools. So again, they're looking at Tylenol use among mothers uh, during pregnancy, and then they look, they collected language data using these validated tools when kids were around two years old. All right. So I also want to take a step back before we really get into things here to talk about the fact that this is an observational study. And the difference between an observational study and an experimental study is that in an observational study, spoiler alert, we're observing our exposure and our outcome. So here we're, um, and I'll get into how the participants were recruited in a moment, but there's a cohort of women who were recruited into the study. They're followed over time. We're observing their Tylenol use over time. And then we're also assessing our outcome of interest, which were these language outcomes. Now, had this been an experimental study, so an RCT, a randomized controlled trial, we would have randomly assigned the exposure of interest, which in this case is Tylenol use. 
And <clears throat> the reason this is such a strong approach is because by randomly assigning Tylenol use, we're getting rid of a lot of confounding variables because there are likely differences between women who will take Tylenol during pregnancy and those who don't, those who take it several times during pregnancy versus those who will take it once. And those differences, so for example, maybe someone who's very, very conscious about the foods they're consuming, the medications they're consuming. Maybe there are also other lifestyle differences or environmental differences. And maybe those factors are also independently impacting the likelihood of whether that mother's child will develop autism. And so that's why experimental studies are considered the gold standard, because through randomization, they get rid of a lot of that confounding and a lot of that bias. And I also just want to say that sometimes while RCTs are considered the gold standard, they're impractical for many reasons. Sometimes they could be more costly. They can they um, require considerably more oversight um, because they're they're done in a controlled setting. And also sometimes they are considered unethical. So if there's any concern, for example, that Tylenol use might be dangerous um, to, to take during pregnancy, an IRB, that's an institutional review board, a, a group of people put in place to protect human subjects that participate in research, they'd be highly unlikely to approve any study that randomly assigns a group of participants to taking Tylenol. So these are just things that I want you to keep in mind when you're reading studies. So yes, RCTs typically considered the gold standard, but know that there are certain practical considerations um, that sometimes limit their, their use. So, all right. So I'm going to summarize some things here. Let, let's talk about how participants were recruited into the study. So researchers recruited pregnant women from two local obstetric clinics between December 2013 and March 2020. Clinics provided potential participants with study brochures during their first prenatal vi visit, and interested individuals indicated their desire to participate by returning a reply card. Um, so again, this was, <clears throat> excuse me, participants were voluntarily participating, and then as we'll discuss, um, their use of acetaminophen was observed. It was not randomly assigned. So to be considered eligible for this study, women had to be less than 15 weeks pregnant, fluent in English between the years of 18 to 40 years old. Um, it had to be a single pregnancy, so they couldn't be carrying multiples. They had to be willing to provide blood and urine samples throughout pregnancy. Um, they could not have an existing child already participating in the research. They had to reside within 30 minutes of the University of Illinois campus. Uh, the pregnancy could not be considered high risk except due to advanced maternal age. And they had to plan to stay in the area until the child's first birthday. Hmm. Pardon me. So how were data collected? So, of course, the first thing they had to do was provide written informed consent. Researchers collected information through interviews. So they were collecting information on demographics, health history, pregnancy um, symptoms, medication use, and lifestyle factors. Participants were interviewed about medication use at multiple time points throughout their pregnancy and then again shortly after birth. Researchers focused on identifying medications containing acetaminophen, for example, Tylenol, but also other medications that contain Tylenol or acetaminophen as just one of several ingredients. And then they calculated the frequency of acetaminophen use during each trimester and then overall, so cumulative use. And researchers collected development development data in children between December 2016 and August 2022 for a longitudinal study, which means that they followed participants over time. So in terms of assessing language, there were two uh, validated tools. One is called the Child Development Inventory, abbreviated as CDI. This is a parent report tool that measures expressive vocabulary, so the words that the child uses, language complexity, so sentence structure, mean length of utterance, 
This is abbreviated as M3L, and it's a complexity measure of speech. And researchers analyzed both raw scores and percentile scores, which were normalized by age and sex. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The second tool is the Short Language Assessment Scale, abbreviated as SLAS. This is, again, a parent report questionnaire designed to assess um, these aspects of language. So assertiveness, responsiveness, semantics, syntax, and articulation. And in this study, the researchers only used the reliable combined total score of SLAS, excuse me, due to limitations of the individual scales. So what other variables did they consider? Um, I was very interested in how they collected data on acetaminophen. So they did collect details about the type of acetaminophen formulation and the reason for use. Um, or the indication. But this was, of course, only for the participants who did report taking acetaminophen. Um, But interestingly, these details were not factored into the statistical models. And I'll talk more about that in just a little bit. Now, we were talking earlier about confounding, right? So I'm very curious, what are the other variables that the researchers considered and included in their models? So I looked through and I see that they um, they chose to focus on parent education, maternal age, parity, household income, first trimester smoking and alcohol use, native language, child age at assessment, and number of older siblings. They also looked at average perceived stress and depression scores from various life stages. Now, maternal verbal IQ and birth weight were not included as covariates, and this is because there were a lot of missing data. And that's really unfortunate because just taking a step back as a social science researcher, I would think that maternal language and and verbal IQ would likely have an impact on child language through both um, modeling um, as well as genetics. And so I do think that this is a a definite limitation that I want to flag here. Um, And again, that was due to, to missing data. So what were other factors that they adjusted for in their models? Um, So they looked at child sex as a potential modifier. Um, What does this mean? It means that um, the researchers expect that there's some sort of an interaction between child sex and the outcome of interest. Um, This is largely because we know that Um, boys and girls develop language at different uh, paces, different ages. Um, So I do think that that was very important to include. Um, They also looked at, let's see here, child age at assessment, maternal parity, maternal education, um, average pregnancy, uh, as I said, perceived stress and depression. And then um, let's see what else. Uh, I think that's it. Excuse me. Yes, I think that's it. So then let's talk about statistical analysis a little bit. And again, I'm going to walk through these things in more detail. I'm just kind of going big picture and then I'll zoom in for you in just a little bit. Now, remember, like I said, statistical analysis is dictated by the data that we have. So these researchers use something called multivariable generalized linear regression models, We use linear regression models when we're looking at a continuous outcome, and that's precisely what they did when looking at continuous outcomes, including language development scores. Um, And then in other instances, they, um, they looked at a binary outcome. So they categorized language scores as above or below the 25th percentile. And when you have a binary outcome, you do not do linear regression. You you use logistic regression. And this gives us 
odds ratios. Um, and I'm going to talk more about this, I promise. So let's, let me just say this one more time. So the researchers used multivariable generalized linear regression models to examine the relationship between the frequency of acetaminophen use during each trimester and overall and language development scores. And they're looking again at those different measures like vocabulary, sentence length, and complexity. They considered potential sex differences in language development by testing for interactions between child sex and acetaminophen exposure. And they also presented results separately for boys and girls if they found significant interactions. They also, as I said, they categorized language scores as being above or below the 25th percentile using logistic regression to see how acetaminophen use might influence a child's odds of falling at the lower end of the distribution. Again, whenever you think of logistic regression, you should expect to to be um, looking at the odds ratios, the odds of a particular outcome occurring. Another thing I want to mention, and this is very commonly done in this type of research, is that the researchers conducted sensitivity analysis uh, analyses, and this is to ensure the robustness of their findings. So they basically they'll run different different tests to see if their analyses, excuse me, to see if their results were influenced by factors like maternal age, um, excuse me, maternal alcohol use, smoking, native language, marital status, stress, depression, partner's education. Um, They also looked at extreme data points. They looked at outliers. They looked at children who were slightly outside the target age range for the language tests. Um, They did also look at the use of other medications like psychotropics and analgesics. Um, And they restricted the analysis to participants with data at both time points. Let's get into it. I'm going to talk, I want to talk about the study population. So just so you have a sense of how these things go, initially there were 688 pregnant women who were enrolled in the cohort, but then 153 withdrew where they became ineligible before or at birth based on the inclusion criteria that I mentioned earlier. So 535 infants were born and were actively enrolled in the study, but then three of the infants lacked exposure data, um, we're assuming on acetaminophen use, and so they, 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 excuse me, they were therefore excluded from the study, so we were ultimately left with a grand total of 532 people. Uh, yes, 532 participants, excuse me. So now people will often ask about sample size. You know, what's the minimum sample size? Are there enough people or was this sample size robust enough? That's difficult to answer. And there's no, there's no, you know, number that I could say right now that would apply to any and all studies, right? So what we do at the start of a study is we conduct something called power calculations. And this helps us determine the minimum sample size needed for our particular study. So for um, to have more confidence in detecting a true effect, of course, you need a larger power value, which requires a larger sample size. Um, if you're looking to detect a smaller difference between groups, you'll also need a larger sample size. If the data you're looking at have a lot of spread or variability, you'll need a larger sample size to overcome that noise. So of course, whenever possible, we want to have as large a sample size as possible. It allows us to do more complex analyses and really dig into certain subgroups and subpopulations. But again, it's hard for me to just throw out a number as a minimum. But again, this study had 532 participants. Um, they, they all had available exposure data, um, and the researchers said that they were demographically similar to the subsets that completed the language assessments. But I do want to flag something that I noticed. Those who completed those different language assessments, the CDI and the SLAS, they tended to have slightly different profiles. They were more likely to be white and non-Hispanic. They were more likely to have at least a bachelor's degree. They were more likely to have a vaginal birth. And they had lower stress and depression scores during pregnancy. So again, 
these are potential confounders that may be impacting the observed outcome. What about acetaminophen users versus non-users? So these are really, these are the two groups that we're interested in comparing, right? This is our main point of comparison, acetaminophen use and non-use. And so looking at the sample, participants who reported taking acetaminophen during pregnancy generally didn't differ significantly from those who do, did not, except, <coughs> so sorry, <clears throat> except that more acetaminophen users were white and non-Hispanic, and more acetaminophen, excuse me, more acetaminophen users spoke English as their native language. Now, okay, what was the prevalence of acetaminophen use um, among participants. So in this cohort, about 71% of participants reported using acetaminophen at least once during pregnancy. This is higher than the rates reported in some previous studies that I looked at. Um, and, and very few participants used any pain medications other than acetaminophen. And this, again, is, is really informed by the fact that it, it is the only approved analgesic um, for use during pregnancy. So looking at patterns of use, um, acetaminophen use was most common during the first trimester, um, about 58.6% of participants. Usage declined in later trimesters. Most participants who took medications containing acetaminophen specifically um, used uh, acetaminophen, uh, excuse me, they, they used Tylenol only. They used acetaminophen only. They were not using combination medications. And the most common reason reported for taking it was pain management. Let's talk about comparing subsets. So there wasn't a difference in acetaminophen use patterns between the subset of participants with language assessment data and the full, the larger iKids sample. However, Participants with um, language assessment data took acetaminophen more frequently throughout their entire pregnancy compared to the full sample. And this was especially notable um, for the subset that completed the SLAS um, tool. So let's talk about sex differences. To be expected, girls showed more advanced language skills than boys. Um, this was uh, specifically observed in the CDI assessment uh, in vocabulary, sentence length, and complexity. And the sex difference was less pronounced at the time of the SLAS assessment, which occurred at a slightly older age at three years. So sorry, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, that CDI assessment that was conducted around two years of age, and then the SLAS was conducted uh, later at three years. And so what the researchers found, just to summarize it, is that those sex differences in language outcomes were more pronounced around two years, less pronounced um, at that three-year follow-up. All right, let's get into it. Acetaminophen use and language outcomes. So the key finding was that generally more frequent acetaminophen use during pregnancy was associated with poorer language outcomes at that two-year at that two-year mark, specifically looking at a smaller vocabulary size and shorter sent sentence length. In terms of timing, these associations were most pronounced with acetaminophen use in the second and third trimester. There was no sex difference, so the impact of acetaminophen use did not differ between boys and girls. And looking at um, complexity, language complexity scores did not seem related to acetaminophen use. So I, I want to drill down into some of the categorical outcomes. So remember how I said that the researchers, they divided, um, they divided things up looking at those who were above or below the 25th percentile. And a notable portion of children in the study had language scores falling at or below the 25th percentile for their age and sex. Um, it was 27% for vocabulary, 15% for sent sentence length, and 11% for language complexity. 
Let's talk about the logistic regression results. So acetaminophen and odds of lower scores. And I'm going to get into this. I, I want to talk just for a moment about odds um, in, in just, just give me one, one minute there. Um, but overall, more frequent acetaminophen use during pregnancy was associated with increased odds of children having language scores between the, the, excuse me, let me say that one more time. Overall, more frequent acetaminophen use during pregnancy was associated with increased odds of having language scores below the 25th percentile. Now, this was specific to boys. Acetaminophen use was associated with moderately higher odds of having the M3L and language complexity scores below the 25th percentile. So again, that particular, those outcomes were specific to boys. Now let's jump ahead to that, um, to that three-year assessment, the SLAS assessment. The key finding here was that more frequent acetaminophen use during pregnancy was generally linked to lower total scores on the assessment. Um, the association was present for acetaminophen use in the second and third trimesters, as well as overall pregnancy exposure. And there's a suggestion that boys might be more strongly affected by third trimester acetaminophen exposure, showing a more pronounced decrease in SLAS scores compared to girls. Now, I want to talk about this for a minute, because when you look at this study, you'll notice, first of all, there weren't a ton of significant findings. And I want to talk about the measure of effect. So what do I mean when I say measure of effect? Let's talk about odds ratios. So in an odds ratio, we're comparing the odds of an outcome in one group versus the odds of an outcome in another group. We're setting up a ratio or a fraction. So you have one group in your numerator, usually your exposure group, and the other group in the denominator, your control group. So let, let's talk specifics for a minute. So if I'm looking at the odds of um, I'll say, just for ease of this example, um, autism diagnoses as the outcome, although again, this study was looking at language differences specifically and not autism diagnoses. So <clears throat> if I'm looking at uh, the impact of acetaminophen during uh, pregnancy and autism diagnoses, my exposure is Tylenol use during pregnancy. My outcome is autism diagnoses. So I'd be looking at the odds of autism diagnoses in the group of mothers who were taking Tylenol during pregnancy versus those who did not take Tylenol during pregnancy. Now, what happens if the odds of autism diagnoses are the same in both groups? So I'm asking you, what if my numerator and my denominator are the same? Well, I'm sure you know this. If the numerator and denominator are equal in a fraction, that fraction will equal one. Therefore, when we're talking about odds ratios, or really any ratio in, in statistical analysis, I could be talking about rate ratios or risk ratios or a variety of other ratio type estimates. If my numerator is the same as my denominator, my null value is one. So if I'm saying there's no difference in the two groups I'm comparing, they will be equal and my ratio will equal one. So when, when you're looking at your odds ratio, when you're looking at this study, you want to see how far away from that null value of one is your estimate. And if you look at the numbers, the measures, the measures of effect were quite small. The odds ratios were 1.1, 1.2, or on the opposite side, 0.9. So we're not talking about a huge measure of effect. Another thing I want to flag for you, for those who do have an interest in the statistical type stuff, and I'll keep it pretty high level, I think most people know that we're looking for p-values, right? A p-value in social science is typically set at a significance level of 0.05. And so we know if we get a p-value that's less than 0.05, our findings are significant. If they're greater than 0.05, they're not significant. But we can also look at confidence intervals to tell us about statistical significance. 
So if our confidence interval contains the null value, which in this case, since we're looking at an odds ratio, is one, if it contains one, our findings are not significant. And we're not all that confident that that association that we found was not due to chance. So I want you to keep that in mind. So yes, there were some statistically significant findings here. Um, however, the measure of effect that we're talking about, this is not a huge measure of effect. And the odds were not grossly higher for the group that took Tylenol during pregnancy versus those who did not. So let me boil it down for you. The main finding for this particular study is that taking more acetaminophen during pregnancy, particularly during the second and third trimesters, was associated with poorer scores on measures of language development when children were about two years um, and less significantly observed at around age three years. Only male children had lower scores in the analyses that were stratified by child sex, and the most significant findings involved smaller vocabularies, shorter sentence length, lower language complexity, um, and lower scores on that SLAS assessment. So what was great about this study is that it was the first that I came across to use detailed language assessments for evaluating the impact of acetaminophen. It also uniquely examined exposure by trimester. The second and third trimesters may be critical periods for language development, making them particularly sensitive to the effects of acetaminophen. Um, the, off, the authors suggest acetaminophen might interfere with neurodevelopment via the uh, endocannabinoid system. This is what they hypothesize as the mechanism of action for potential impact of acetaminophen use during pregnancy on this particular outcome, these language outcomes, but more research is necessary. So certain strengths of this study, it was a prospective cohort design. It's great that they collected longitudinal data um, during pregnancy and then after the, the child was born. Um, they did take repeated acetaminophen use uh, assessments throughout the pregnancy, and they used multiple validated language outcome measures and across different ages. So that was great. In terms of limitations, this was a, a relatively small sample size. But again, it's very difficult to comment on that um, because of the, the power calculations that I mentioned earlier. Um, but of course, a larger sample size would have given us more confidence in findings. Something else that's very important is that the, the study population was relatively homogenous in terms of demographics. So these were mostly white, non-Hispanic, well-educated, and high-income participants. So what does this mean? This limits the external generalizability of this study, or our ability to generalize beyond our study population. So it would be very interesting to see this study repeated in different demographics. Um, it did also report on self, excuse me, it relied on self-reported data. This always opens the door, um, the potential for recall bias. Although I will say there were other observational studies that simply asked participants to recall their acetaminophen use during pregnancy versus this study, which actually measured it during pregnancy. And that did get rid of some of the potential for recall bias, because we know that in this other scenario, so if you're if you're asking um, mothers to recall their acetaminophen use, that would likely be biased by whether or not their child was diagnosed with autism or whether or not their child had certain language um, difficulties. Because we know that those parents might be more likely to recall acetaminophen use because they're trying harder to understand why their child is experiencing these things. Um, there also was a lack of dosage information, and there was certainly the potential confounding from the underlying conditions that led to acetaminophen use. Um, so we know that they were taking acetaminophen, but maybe it was actually what 
led them to take acetaminophen that might actually be impacting the odds of having these language deficits um, after birth. So I hope you found that interesting and helpful. I could do this all day. I love this stuff. Um, I also just wanted to summarize that you know, while the research is ongoing, medical professionals generally recommend that pregnant women can safely use acetaminophen, but should only do so when necessary and in the lowest effective dose for the shortest duration possible. Of course, you should always, always consult with your medical provider before taking any medication, especially during pregnancy. And this does include Tylenol. The body of evidence on the connection between Tylenol use during pregnancy and and autism is mixed. While some studies raise a potential concern, more conclusive research is needed to determine a definitive causal link. And again, I just want to underscore that during pregnancy, you should certainly exercise caution and discuss all medication use with your healthcare provider. Well, I hope you found this interesting and you enjoyed walking through the study with me. I have some great episodes planned in the coming weeks, including on topics like heavy metals, microplastics, the increase in cancer diagnoses, particularly among people under the age of 50 years, and much, much more. In the meantime, I will continue to share infographics to the Unbiased Science social media channels, so be sure to give a follow at Unbiased SciPod. It would also be super helpful if you would leave a review on Apple or wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, thank you. Please be sure to subscribe to the Unbiased Science channel. Remember, there's also an Unbiased Science newsletter that's deployed via Substack. It's totally free to subscribe, but if you are willing, able, and inclined, there is a paid subscription available that is much appreciated, and you can find that at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. Sincere thanks for tuning in and following along as we share no nonsense, just science. Yeah.